to brain research. And so this stems from two recent studies that I came across, and I want to kind of talk about them and break them down. So one of them is an Alzheimer's research, and this one was a pretty big deal. So it was a research study back in 2006. It was a major study, and it turns out a lot of it had been fabricated. And the other one we wanted to talk about is depression and serotonin levels. And so this is another recent big study that was done. And I think this one is actually a combination of like 17 different studies. I also want to be very clear up front, because when we talk about this depression and serotonin level study, it sounds a little bit like, and, and I don't think that's their intent, but I, w- I don't want someone to at any point in this episode to feel like Mark and I are trying to invalidate or mitigate people who struggle with depression. We want to acknowledge it is a real thing and people do struggle with it, but I think this research is important to talk about. Well, I think a lot of it is about consumers having the correct information. I think that's yes. always important so that we can make informed choices. So really, it's more about that. It's about giving our listeners what we think is, you know, the latest information. And who, who knows, in a month, that may change as well. But yeah. at least right now, what we're trying to do is give you the latest information. Yes, yes, exactly. And so we are in no way, shape, or form trying to mitigate or invalidate anyone struggling with depression right. is is really what I wanted to to push. Okay, so let's start with this Alzheimer's research study. And so this came from a physician and neuroscientist. His name is Matthew Schrag, and he raised concern about a major 2006 study done by Sylvain Lesney of the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. And so what Sylvain Lesney did is he did this huge research project and he concluded that the primary cause of Alzheimer's is this amyloid beta plaque is what causes Alzheimer's. And so based off of this study, there was a drug that was used and a lot of research and a lot of extensive continuing research has been done based off of this 2006 study. So first of all, I want to break down what are amyloid beta plaques? Am I saying that right? Yeah, this this is really complicated. Yes. (laughs) Which most things with the brain are complicated. Yeah. So we're going to try and simplify it so that people can understand it. So the plaque, as I understand it, I'm going to use a term that I read. I didn't make this up. But through a series of different conversions in the brain, what happens is you get these amyloid plaques and they call them chemically sticky. Okay. Which I I don't know. I think that helps me visualize what's going on. And so these plaques will then accumulate in the brain. Now, it used to be, and I don't know if this is still the case, but if you suspect someone has Alzheimer's, in the past, the only way that you would actually confirm that is if you did an autopsy mm-hmm. after they were dead. And then if you found these amyloid plaques in the brain, then they would give you a post-mortem diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Okay. Now, I think today it might be different. And I haven't read if they're going to change the way they diagnose Alzheimer's, because this is fairly new. This only came up two weeks ago, I think, is when this particular information came out. Yeah, it was yeah, it was about two, maybe three weeks ago. It is very recent that Matthew Schrag, that the physician, 
and neuroscientists came out with this. So this came out in 2006. Yes. And I think Matthew Schrag had his doubts back then. Okay. And And that I The way I read this article anyway is that he raised concern about the validity of the research paper back then. And the reason he did is because it was contrary to what he was thinking. Mm -hmm. And so he thought, well, you know, what's going on here? So I think it's taken this long to figure this out. Well, it started about six months ago. So Cassava Sciences is the company, I guess, I think it's a, it's some sort of center or research. I'm not really clear on what uh-huh. Cassava Sciences is. I think they're the drug manufacturer. Okay. 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 Drug. Right. That makes sense. And so they developed this drug based off of Lesney's findings. And then six months ago, Cassava Sciences they launched their own six-month investigation into the matter. So this has been going on for six months, but it only just came out recently. I don't know how they kept the whole thing hush-hush until now, but their findings are saying, yes, Lesney did most likely falsify his report. And so what I gathered is that he took... Basically, he took a bunch of different pieces from his research and he puzzled it together to make it look like what he wanted. But it's not an actual accurate depiction. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, that's correct. And so I'm going to save my reasoning. You know, I wasn't surprised when you you told me this and there's a reason I'm not surprised. And I'll go into that in a bit. There's a problem, obviously, with falsifying research. Um, Yes. Uh, results. And, you know, what happens is there's a lot of wasted money. There's wasted research because that particular study that comes out in 2006 then really provides direction for other people to follow. Mm -hmm. So what are we, 2022? And so we've got, what, you know, 18 years of research that may be going down the wrong path. Now, somebody pointed out that it's a physician, Dennis Selko, from Harvard, pointed out that it may not have, you know, diverted money and research time in a significant way. I mean, it could have, but they don't know that yet. Okay. But the important thing that he says is that then the public doesn't trust the research. Yep. Which I think is true. Yeah. And I think we, you know, in some ways should be skeptical, but we also are trusting researchers to be honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, about what they find. And so as I thought about the idea of the amyloid plaques being a significant factor in Alzheimer's. So as I mentioned earlier, that it used to be, if you thought you had Alzheimer's, you died, they did a a postmortem. And then if you had the amyloid plaques, you got that diagnosis. But what we don't know, see, here's the other piece is what we don't know is how many healthy people have those because they don't have the same autopsies done. Oh, okay. So you have people who may not have any symptoms of Alzheimer's or dementia, and it might be that they have those amyloid plaques. Mm -hmm. It's just something we don't know. So it's almost like the case of we're only going to find this because we're looking for it. Yeah. And and there it is. And I would guess that there are some people who had those symptoms of dementia. They open them up after death. They don't have the amyloid plaques and they don't have the diagnosis of Alzheimer's when in reality they may have Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. I think one thing it points out is now what I'm going to say is we need more research, which seems kind of funny since we're talking about 
how research can be falsified. But I think we need to have a better idea of what's really going on. And again, my understanding is that nowadays, either with chemical, I think they can do blood tests to figure out some of this stuff that you don't actually need to open people up. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I think that you can probably tell with a blood test if you have those amyloid plaques. But again, we aren't doing this. We aren't testing people who don't present with symptoms of dementia or Alzheimer's to see, is that same thing occurring in, in, let's call them healthy people? Right. So it's a more investigation that needs to be done. Yeah, I agree. I mean, on the same token, does it really make sense to do an autopsy on every person who dies of old age? So I think that's another consideration, right? No, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. That's why I think that, you know, now that with the advent, I'm pretty sure of these blood tests, that it's going to be easier to do that because then you can just take blood from healthy people, compare it to blood from people who have dementia, and hopefully some differences will show up. Yeah. I would guess it's going to be, I mean, maybe there'll be something with amyloid plaques. I would guess it's probably going to be something else too, though, you know, maybe a combination of things. Yeah. And so I guess my understanding to really kind of dumb this down of what these amyloid plaques is they're sticky and they kind of congeal in the brain and it's what messes with your memory well messes with the neurons so it damages the neurons in some way okay and so what happens is we are the connections in our brain yes and as we've talked about in previous episodes you know the way we behave and the connections in the brain are all about what our, our previous experiences in life and so, you know, when someone gets Alzheimer's, it's like they you slowly lose that person and what they're yep. losing is their memory. And what we are, if you think about it, is we are our memories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And once we lose those, then we lose the definition of who we are. And that's why it's it's really a tragic disease. So I think nowadays that hopefully with the advent of other tests that can mm-hmm. determine whether you have those amyloid plaques. But I, I suspect that it's, there, there will be other factors involved mm-hmm. that will distinguish between a healthy person who doesn't have any signs of dementia and someone who has those signs of dementia. And so I think we're going to get better information. And so you're right. You, did, you know, it's not going to have to be uh, done through autopsies, which is <laughs> correct. You can't be cutting everybody open. Yeah. Just, that doesn't work very well. No. And plus, it's too gross. It's not fine enough yeah. to figure out what's going on. Whereas I think the blood tests will be fine enough to do that. Yeah. I mean, they can, because they can detect so much. I mean, they can literally detect levels of allergy in your blood. Like they mm-hmm. can look at your blood and say, you are this allergic to eggs. Like that's exactly what they did with my youngest, with my son. He's got a very severe egg allergy. And so we were able to compare his levels from like two years ago and it spiked from like a 9.7 up to like 52 or something like that. And I don't know how they can see that from like a blood test, but they can, they can. And I think it's the way we can analyze blood now. So I think it's just amazing what we can do with blood, what people can do with blood. And why it's so important to get your yearly physical, even if you're healthy, even if you don't feel like you need to. Well, let's talk about research. Why was I not surprised? Yeah. Can I make a guess? Uh Uh-huh. Money. Well, 
In a way, in an indirect way. Here I'll okay. Says. So the vast majority of research, uh, whether it's medical or psychological, any type of research happens in university settings. Okay. And, and so it's rare, uh, although the, the one example that we'll talk about when we talk about serotonin is often the drug companies will do research. But mm -hmm. the problem with the drug companies, as we'll get into it, is they get to let you see whatever they want you to mm -hmm. see and they hold back what they don't want you to see. So with universities, it's a little bit different because most of them are state institutions. And so like the University of Utah, I can't remember the designation. There's a certain designation that they get, like it's a university that gets a lot of research money. And mm -hmm. there are certain big universities around the country that do that. So you have that, you have the money that, so you're right, in some ways it's money that comes in to the university to fund this research. But I think more importantly, it's about the professors, it's about the PhDs who are doing the research, because the way academia is set up is that the only way you get either tenure, promotions, you know, from assistant professor to, to full professor, the only way that happens is by publishing. You have yeah. to do research. So there's a huge incentive for the professors, for the researchers to get something published. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens is usually the research starts with a, a hypothesis. Now, it could be something that you think, okay, this might happen in this research. That's how you have to start. And it could be from other research you've done. It could be just an idea you have. Mm -hmm. But what happens is the only research that gets published is when there are positive results for the hypothesis. Mm. So what that means is if a lot of research you aren't going to get that those positive results. It'll be a negative yeah. result, which then disproves your hypothesis. Nothing happens with that. Mm -hmm. It becomes wasted time, wasted money on the part of the researcher. And often these researchers will have whole labs that they're supporting with the research, you know, because they're getting grants and they're getting funded. And so the, the pressure mm -hmm. that they feel to publish, because that's the only way they're going to progress and get promoted which means more money for them. And the only way they're going to get future grants is if they have positive results. And so I, I certainly don't know any figures. I don't know anybody that anybody knows any figures about how many studies have been falsified. I would guess it's quite a few. Yeah, which, I mean, you know, they say money is the root of all evil, and there you have I it. That. Yeah, I, I mean, that's true. yeah, the National Institute of Health itself, which is a huge organization, they invested millions of dollars into the development of this drug based on this research. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of people are pretty upset, but I think a lot of people like yourself are really unsurprised yeah. by it because, you know, you're right. And I think that's a huge problem that that is the way that we are driven. And, and this is a, is this just a national thing in the United States or is this a global thing? I think it's a global thing, I would yeah. guess. I mean, I, I'm just guessing that academic institutions are pretty similar, where yeah. at least in, in what you'd call westernized cultures. Mm -hmm. But I think the way to change that is to make it okay to have uh, research that fails and in some way acknowledge it and maybe even publish it. Because I think there are some times when a failed experiment could be interesting and informative as well. Well, and you never know what you can pick up. Like you never know what or what findings someone else might see in your field research. You know, I really love that idea because someone might see, okay, you published this failed research that you did. Your hypothesis was not supported, 
But based off of what you did, I can see this or I can see how to tweak it. I mean, I think I don't know why that's not the norm now. I don't know why either. It's a broken system. But yeah. I think those of us who, you know, who went and got graduate degrees, you can, it's so easy to see how yeah. it's broken because it's all about publishing. And these professors, you know, I think they like what they do. They like the teaching, but there's always this pressure to publish. I mean, yeah. they, I don't know if you've heard the term publish or perish. That's mm. exactly what it's referring to, is if you don't publish, you aren't going to get tenure. And and the only way you're going to publish is if you have positive results in your research. That's what needs to change. I don't know that it ever will, though. I'm, I mean, if you think about all the institutes of higher learning in our country, I mean, that would be a massive, massive change. Right. And I think it also sends the message, and maybe that's what this stems from, is because from a very, very early on, we are taught that it's not okay to fail. We are taught from a very, very young age to get the right answer. Like we're that's drilled into us from a very young age and that you have to try, try, try. If at first if you don't succeed, try again. I think, you know, it stems from the problem. And I know today that's changing. Kids are taught it's okay to fail. It's okay to mess up. It's okay to make a mistake, learn from it and move on. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it will change. You know, we, we give lips or some kind there sometimes about it's okay to fail. I don't know if you ever saw the billboards, which I kind of liked. I think the billboards were about perseverance. And the one I liked was Thomas Edison. And I can't remember how many times he failed at, at trying to perfect the light bulb, but, but it was a lot. I mean, yeah. we were talking thousands of times. No, oh, yeah. thousands of times that he failed and he just kept going and finally gets the light bulb. And so, you know, the implication is, yeah, it's okay to fail and we all need to fail, but there's some institutions where that's not okay and it's not accepted. Yeah. And that's a huge problem. I mean, because where would we be without the light bulb? Where would we be if Thomas Edison hadn't kept trying? <laughs> we'd, we'd have a candle business. <laughs> be selling oh. Candles. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Okay. So let's go ahead and transition and move on to this depression research. And so the title of this research is Low Serotonin Levels Don't Cause Depression. And the subtext of this is that depression is not caused by chemical imbalance of the brain, is what people are saying. And I guess that rubbed me wrong, the wrong way, or that's why I wanted to make that disclaimer at the very beginning, is because there are people who genuinely do have a chemical imbalance in the brain. And there are people... You really don't know that. Okay. How do you know that? I mean, that would be my question. Okay. It's a theory. Okay. It's a theory that has taken hold. And I, I'm not saying it's an inaccurate theory, mm -hmm. but again, what we'll find out is that there's never been any type of research that supports that particular thing that it's about the imbalance in the brain. Mm. Okay. So I don't, I, I was skeptical. I've always been skeptical. Uh, mm -hmm. And so again, this isn't surprising to me at all, because I don't believe that there was ever any evidence for it. Here's okay. how it started. Um, here's how it started. Back in 1965, so that's a long time ago. And I think it was in the UK that this happened. And there was a group of researchers, and they were looking, I think, at depression. And they just threw out this idea. And they even talk about, this is just an idea. We're wondering about this. Mm -hmm. Is it low serotonin levels? So it wasn't based on anything. Hmm. They just thought, well, you know, maybe we should look at that. And so by the 1970s, you could actually test 
the serotonin levels. And so what happened is they then gave, I don't know what this substance is, but I guess there's something that you can give to people that is known to lower their serotonin levels. And so if that's true, if you give this substance to these people, then they should become depressed, Mm -hmm. right? Well, it didn't happen. Okay. Those serotonin levels didn't seem to affect the people at all. And so this comes from this uh, physician in Wales that he's saying there was never any basis for it ever. Mm -hmm. I I think maybe we could, I don't know if we can say low serotonin then equates to the imbalance in the brain theory of depression. I don't know that I buy that either. Okay. But I think we've talked about this in the past, that book called Lost Connections, Mm -hmm. which is by Johan Hari, and he thinks it's a cultural thing that it's it's the way the world interacts with us the way our culture interacts with us causes depression Mm. but what we know okay here's the thing that get this gets confusing behavior changes our brain right yes yes it does or or experience i mean let's generalize it more to experience changes our brain Mm -hmm. so for instance if you live in the inner city and you're poor and you can't buy food or you don't have adequate housing and you know you're always on the edge of being uh, kicked out of your place and you have little children and you can't get medical care so that's experience does it change the brain absolutely it changes the brain oh yeah we, we know that and so do those people become depressed yeah they do mm-hmm. because they don't have any control over their life. So could you say, okay, something's going on in the brain? Absolutely, something's going on in the brain. I think what we're trying to talk about is what's the cause okay. of what's going on in the brain? And so what I think this research, that, and it's called a meta-analysis if people are listening. So whenever you look at multiple studies mm-hmm. together, okay, that is called a meta-analysis. And it's a really pretty good way to to look at studies because there are statistical ways that you can tease out different facts. And so that's what they did here. It was a meta-analysis. So it's clear that what they're saying is specific to serotonin, that it's evident that a decrease in serotonin levels doesn't cause depression. Now, I, I, so I want to be clear for listeners. I think there is definitely something going on in the brain. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've known people personally who genuinely struggle with anxiety and depression. Right. And and it's a beast of a disease, it right, is. to to deal with. And you know, I think saying that it's not the serotonin levels that's what's causing the depression, that doesn't make it any less real. It doesn't make it any less of a struggle for some people. Right. And it doesn't make it any less uh real that there's something going on in the brain. Yeah. That's it's just not I what they thought. It's just yes. not what they thought. Yes. And there's a reason that serotonin caught on. And the reason that it caught on is, well, it goes back to money. What I think it's the drug companies. And so the drug companies caught on to this. And, you know, they developed these things that are called SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And so it's all based on this theory that Mm -hmm. low serotonin levels cause depression. And so the basis for these drugs isn't true. Okay. So I want, which I've always thought anyway, a lot of us think that. Yes. And so do some people get relief? Yes. But only about 25%. Here's the interesting thing I found. You can look at people and give them, you know, people who have the drugs, people who don't have the drugs, people who get better just over time. And you could statistically, you can split it up and say, okay, how much of their getting better is due to the drugs? How much 
getting of them getting better is due to placebo effect and that type of thing. So here's what they found: that 25% of the effects of antidepressants were due to natural recovery. And okay. all, what that means is 25% of the people would have gotten better anyway, mm-hmm. just with the passage of time, which yeah. we also know is true. Yeah. 50% of the effects of antidepressants was due to the, the placebo. The okay. idea that I, if I think something's going to happen, then it does happen. And it's incredibly mm-hmm. powerful, the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. And then 25% was actually due to the chemical. So okay. What you can see there, so there is definitely some effect. So I hope listeners can hear that. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to be for everybody. Yeah. Which physicians know that. People know that. This, this is not a secret because a lot of people will find relief for a couple of weeks or months. And that, I believe, is the placebo effect. And then they go back to baseline. Yeah. So the drugs in some cases are having a positive effect. That's mm-hmm. what I hope listeners can hear that as well. It's just not for everybody. And it's just not to the extent that uh, we thought. And then the other thing is we really don't know what's going on in the brain with those drugs. Yes. Well, but we do know what the side effects are that much. We do. And so those that, are problematic. That, yeah. Uh, you know, most people have, a lot of difficulty with the side effects. I've certainly talked to clients who are on them and they don't seem to mind the side effects. But as you talk to a lot of clients, you know, they say, well, it hasn't really made a difference, but they, they've they been on it for 20 years. So they stay on it for 20 years. Because it is so hard to get off. So, so hard. So here's the problem with the research. The, how did we get these drugs? Then, mm-hmm. So, you know, I think I've explained how did this idea about serotonin get into, you know, the collective consciousness of, I guess, drug companies and physicians. It was just an idea and nothing ever supported it. So the way the FDA, I have a big problem with the FDA. In fact, I was going to mm-hmm. tell you at the start, if I get up on my soapbox, you have to tell me that I have to get down off my soapbox. <laughs> Because this stuff just really infuriates me. Oh, yeah. The FDA is complicit in this because what happens, so if a drug company wants to bring any drug to, you know, to the public, they have to do a lot of of research, uh, which I think is important. Here's the problem. They conduct the research and then they only release what they want to release. And Mm -hmm. so what what we know, uh, some people have gone back and through the Freedom of Information Act, been able to access these other studies. So here's just one example. In the trial for Prozac, the drug was given to 245 patients. Now it's just one study. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's given to a lot more. So in this one study, it was given to 245 patients, but the company only published results for 27 of those patients, the ones that the drug seemed to work mm-hmm. for. Now, I don't know, I'm not doing my math, but that's a little less than 25%. Yeah. So it worked for about 25 less than 25% of the people, which corresponds to this other these, this other information that I gave. So yes, it works for some, it doesn't work for everybody. And so I think the importance of getting this information out is so that people can make an informed choice mm-hmm. because the drugs do have those side effects. And so for the average patient, those what we call psychotropic drugs, that's the general name, mm-hmm. those drugs don't have any meaningful effect. Now, there's this other book I think I mentioned by Anna Limke, uh, who is a psychiatrist, an MD at Stanford. And she wrote a book called Dopamine Nation. I think we talked about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, we did. Mentioned it. And so 
this is what she says. I'm going to read some quotes. The evidence for psychotropic medications is not robust, especially when taken long term. So mm-hmm. she has a problem with people who take it long term because recent data shows that even antidepressants previously thought not to be habit forming may lead to tolerance and dependence and possibly even make depression worse over the long haul. And they even have a name for it. It's called tardive dysphoria. Mm-hmm. And so there is a problem with that long-term use. Mm-hmm. I think there's a real potential problem with that long-term use of antidepressants. And so, you know, in connection with how we're talking about serotonin, people said, oh, okay, I've got an imbalance in the brain. Physicians told people, oh, your serotonin level's low. Yeah. She had no basis for that. So here's the drug. And we don't know what the drugs do. And in fact, we know it only works for 25% of the people. And so if you think about, they looked at, I I think, four countries, Australia, Canada, the UK, and the US. And let's see, it was from 1990 to 2015. And so you're able to see the amazing increase in the use of antidepressants in that time Mm -hmm. period. Absolutely no decrease in the depression rate. So it's not doing anything. Yeah. If it were actually doing something then you would see some sort of decrease in depression. So it really does irritate me because I think that what I've thought is physicians, you know, someone presents to them and says, I'm really depressed, can't get up in the morning. The only thing they have is to give them drugs. And I think most physicians will recommend talk therapy as well. uh, Yes. To to go along with the drugs. I I think it's pretty rare that a physician is not going to recommend that. But I think as a culture, as a society, we need to look at this in a different way. Mm-hmm. If it's not low serotonin levels, then what's going on? Yeah. And I think it's the way our culture is. It's the way we live in, in the world today. That experience changes our brain. So yes, there are brain differences. It's not coming from the way we think it is. Right. And Mark, you and I have been a longtime advocate of combining CBT or talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy with the use of an antidepressant or before you try an antidepressant, I guess is more accurate. And I'm sure that in your profession, you have recommended people go on an antidepressant. I have not. Really? Because I don't believe it. Okay. Okay. And I say, if you want to go on an antidepressant, you need to talk to your, I recommend what I call an APRN. which is an advanced practice registered nurse or a psychiatrist. I don't think general practitioners are the best source. Okay. Because they just don't have the in-depth training, whereas a psychiatrist or an APRN. And so I don't recommend it. I say, if you are interested in this, I I give them the information that I have. Mm -hmm. And then I say, but you get to make that choice. And so here's who you should go see. And I'll give them recommendations for APRNs or psychiatrists so that they mm-hmm. can go find out themselves. But I really don't believe it. I don't believe okay. it's the way to go. I think the the side effects are really too serious. I think here's the other th- the reason I don't. In my practice, I don't typically see very seriously depressed people. Okay. They're going somewhere else. Oh, okay. They're seeking treatment usually in community mental health centers, things like that. And so, okay, that or, makes sense. or with a psychiatrist uh, in the first place. And so I don't see them. So what, what I see, I see individuals or couples, because I do a lot of couples work, 
where there is the presence, uh, most often nowadays it's anxiety, the presence of anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. And I really never recommend medication for anxiety. Here's my other beef. I'll get back up on my soap box. <laughs> it's that, so the what we call anxiolytics are the medications that people give for anxiety, but they're like Valium. And mm-hmm. so they're pretty addictive. They're yeah. very addictive. And most doctors, it's really hard to find a doctor who's going to prescribe that for you because of the addictive nature of them. So what happened is the drug companies caught onto this and they said, oh, wait, Zoloft also helps your anxiety. Yep. You know, it's not only about depression, it's about anxiety. I've never had a client who said, yeah, it really helped my anxiety. They just made that up so that they can sell more drugs. Mm-hmm. It goes back to, to money. It just really irritates me. And so, uh, but I'm upfront with my clients about this. I am, I, you know, I don't hide it from it. I say, I want you to know I have a bias here. And I explain right. the books and I tell them what I think. And I say, but you need to be in charge of your own, you know, m- medical treatment. You need to, you know, you can get the advice from other people, but you need to be in charge of it. And so you need to get all the information because I think it's way too easy for us to say, oh, there's a pill I can take. It'll help yes. my serotonin levels and I'll be happier. And they don't do any research into it. They don't think about it. They just think, oh, the doctor's going to give me this pill. Everything will be all right. Everything's not all right. And they lose their sex drive, they gain weight, and then they really are less happy. So, mm-hmm. And as that uh, psychiatrist from Stanford pointed out, the long-term use is it's really problematic. But I think the, the idea of serotonin mm-hmm. being the cause of depression is intimately tied with the idea of the medications. Yeah. Because it's mostly about SSRIs. And so I think it's really important for listeners to have the information. And I think this study is a good one to get out there. I hope people, I really hope people will listen to it Mm -hmm. and pay attention to it. And that it starts a conversation about let's look at what's really going on with depression then. Yeah. And not not look at it from a purely medical standpoint about what drug can we throw to this. Yes. I think what would be more helpful in the long term is is to be able to say, how can we change the culture and the lifestyle and the expectations and the way we live so that we aren't depressed, so that we don't get into that mode? Anyway, there's my soapbox. I'll get off now. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I agree, Mark, that I think that rather than trying to say, what pill can we throw at this? Let's change the way we think about things. And not that that's just an easy solution. And I think that's a lot of what this problem stems from is we as, and I know this is true in America, we want an easy fix. This idea that I could take a pill and it's just a quick fix. Well, that's not long-term sustainable and it's not overall healthy. Whereas if you can say, okay, I struggle with the way I perceive things because that's really what depression is. Depression is a sense of hopelessness or, you know, or maybe you struggle with just being really angry. Okay. So you recognize you have this problem. That's a great step. Now, how can I change the way I look at things to improve my outlook? What can I do differently to change that? And it comes down to the big three that you often talk about. Good sleep, good aerobic exercise, daily meditation. Start there before you even consider a medication. See, these two studies that we've talked about, so the one on Alzheimer's and this one on serotonin, they're really similar in a lot of ways in that because of the results 
although there were no, no results on serotonin because it was never studied. But what happens is it sets in motion the way we think about these diseases. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it changed for, what, 20 years or more how we thought about Alzheimer's. And I think the the problem with the serotonin issue is that people say I'm depressed and they immediately go to brain imbalance. How do I change that? Yeah. When I think what they ought to be thinking of, what's going on in my life yes. that's leading me to feel this way? And so does it take more time? Yes. And the result is an immediate. But I think this whole thing with SSRIs for so many years has sent people down the wrong path about what to do for depression or what the cause of depression is. I think that's the value in this particular study to have people say it is not serotonin. Yep, I agree. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, but one of the first questions that a therapist will ask with a new client, what has changed recently in your life that has made you suddenly seek therapy? That's so important. So important. But you can also go back to, like, if someone says, well, I've been depressed for three years, and then I would say, okay, let's go back three years Mm -hmm. and tell me what was, you know, what's going on in your life and what changed. So that, yeah, you're absolutely right that you want to know what changed because that is often the key to 